0: Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks and a Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 151. Well, just ahead, Blackberry insists it has this stuff to be a cybersecurity success, but do the numbers back up that boasting? We'll see. And Crane has a giant fintech business. that's about to emerge as a separately traded stock. We're going to take a look before the split that will divide Crane in half, and a fintech connecting global merchants to consumers in emerging markets, covering all aspects of transactions, regardless of the local currencies. Yes, we've got the D-local chief operating officer, Sumita Pandit. But first, it's sponsor time.
1: The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with Era, Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy to use, customizable interface. That's Era. A-I-E-R-A dot com. And Isaac, here's my list
0: of the places that you can listen to the Drill Down. It includes Listen Notes, Deezer, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Amazon, Audible, Stitcher, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, and yes, Spotify. And on all of these platforms, you can click subscribe or the plus sign and follow us to catch every show.
1: It's such an easy thing to do. You, you just think. take your you finger, think. you click on the thing, you, you kind of click or you tap it or, you know, it's you'll, not you'll even just, a gentle push. You'll just want to smile. Yeah, I'm smiling right now just thinking about it. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled. Technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands, Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B R A I N T R U S T.com to learn more. I talked to a,
0: a, a regular listener of the podcast the other day who told me that his firm had tried out a Brain Trust programmer and, and great success and now is going huh. after a whole bunch of more brain trust programmers. It makes you want, kind of want to be a brain trust programmer, work those freelance
1: hours and get the pay that you want. Well, it's good to know that the ads that I read are not uh, misleading. <laughs> and actually, <I've> <laughs> <talked> good stuff. <laughs> so what I'm saying is truthful. That's helpful. All right. Good. All right. I'm Corey
0: Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We're going to explain the business stories behind a couple of, a few stocks on the move. Some interesting stories here. Helping me tell those stories is as always,
1: executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac. Hey, Corey, how you doing? Living the dream. Always. Corey, what stocks you're drilling at down on today? Let's look at Blend Labs. Blend Labs trades under BLND and shares have plummeted 77% since they started trading last year in 2021, steadily declining from 20 to now just above $4. Yeah, this is a, a broken IPO. Absolutely, uh, company. A broken IPO. Based. I like that. That's a recurring segment. I think we should develop. Uh,
0: exactly. Yeah, um, <laughs> I yeah, like that to, name.
1: It's fun. I used to be. We used
0: to call them faceplant IPOs. We'd look for <laughs> we'd look for companies that just their first quarter out of the out of the gate were just garbage, and the stock would collapse. And then we would actually look, look at these companies to see if there's anything there. We had some successful investments over the days. I'm not saying that this is that at all. To San Francisco-based company Blend. Uh, they build and operate cloud-based software for fintech firms. Basically, they run the the they create a white label service to run the mortgage business for Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank, um, and they do billions of mortgages daily. Um, it's an interesting company founded by a, a now thirty-six-year-old uh, Stanford grad, um, Mr. And- blend. Is his name Blend? No, although reading <laughs> up on him, I did discover that when he went to Stanford, uh, he was so broke, he had to try to find a way to pay for his room and board. So he threw himself into the world of online poker and started pay- playing professionally.
1: Oh, wow. That's interesting. Pay for his
0: attendance at Stanford. Yeah. So um, that, that uh, Neemam Gamsari is the name of that uh, young CEO, 36-year-old CEO. And... You know, there to be in the mortgage business at a time when prices are really high, inventory is low, and interest rates are rising uh, could be challenging. And indeed, as these guys have reported results since doing the IPO, the numbers and the growth rates haven't been quite what they thought. Kind of defensive about that. Sometimes you'll have a CEO who will just say, yeah, it's a tough time to be in this business. We're going to be okay. Or, you know, tough time to be in this business. We're not going to be okay. I remember the CEO of Marine Max uh, once upon a time, I was at a financial conference and he stood up and talked about how bad the boat business was at the time, boat business we, just, we described last week and all the analysts in the room ignored it. And they came out with these bullish recommendations. And I was like, the guy just told us the business stinks. I went home and shorted the stock and did well with that one back in the day. Nice, But that's a rarity. And I think you'll hear that when you hear about it, uh, right now, when we listen to Niemeck, I'm sorry, the CEO and co-founder of this business, Talk about what they have seen when they sort of back-tested their business plan historically uh, on the technological adoption of their kind of solution in the mortgage business.
1: We looked at this historically because there have been other down years in the market since we've been in existence. And those, those down years, when customers are really focused on making sure they have great technology in place so they can drive more efficient operations, tend to be better years for us. Um, And the share gain this year that we're projecting, which is around similar to the magnitude that we gained last year, uh, is a lot of that's actually already spoken for. Those are customers that have already signed with us and are already in the process of rolling out. And so because of the timing of our rollouts and when the deals end up closing, it tends to be a little bit lagged, as, as you can imagine. But we expect to have, and we've already been having lots of conversations with customers that maybe previously we wouldn't have had conversations with because this is a challenging environment. And they want to get better technology in place to lower their cost structures
0: so yeah we've got the blend ceo talking a bullish game but the results uh, just aren't there quite yet for this business
1: corey what's your next drill down i want to look at crane 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 trades under cr and shares have risen 14 percent in a year slightly better than the overall market and big news out of crane
0: uh, yes, uh, is it, so this is an old business, 1855 founding for this business. I wasn't even around then.
1: Oh, that's, that's how old it is. Are you sure?
0: Uh, I, well, I don't remember it, at least. Okay. Um, but uh, uh company based in Stanford, Connecticut, um, and they've got two businesses that I think aren't very well understood by Wall Street. The company thinks they aren't very uh, well understood as separate businesses, so they're going to split the company in two. And they're going to take a Crane Company going forward. They're going to expect the, split, they expect the split to happen this next year. Crane Company will have their aerospace, and electronics, and process flow technology business. The other business called Crane NXT, kind of like next, I don't know. Uh, it's a payment and merchandising technology business, and it is the fastest growing part of that of their business. It has 1.4 billion dollars in sales. It'll be in the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker CXT. Unlike Crane, which is CR, as you mentioned. Um, so, it, pretty interesting here because they just recognize that when you look around at companies like Block or Square, and they have these fantastic valuations, because Crane has this old industrial business, it just doesn't get the same kind of um, uh, profile. I mean, they they're they're as I mentioned, it's the fastest growing part of their business. This company has a, a, a P.E. ratio of 16, right? Compare that to Square, um, uh, or now called Block, right? Um, that's got a P.E. ratio of 449. Huh. Now, I'm not saying that this thing, will, who knows what, what this will get when they split this thing off, but I think that they expect it will get a much higher valuation and it'll be a tax-free split. Listen to CEO Max Mitchell talk about moving forward with this process to try to break these companies in two.
2: Moving forward with a process that will unlock
0: shareholder value and unleash the power of two. Crane and Crane NXT are both positioned to pursue separate but equally exciting growth paths, incredibly strong global technology-focused businesses, great financial profiles and consistent execution supported by the discipline and cadence of the Crane business system and our strong unique culture, with both companies able to independently optimize their strategies, investment approaches and capital allocation policies. All of this should unlock value
2: and allow the right mix of investors to fully appreciate what makes each of these businesses so special.
0: So this kind of, a, 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 a you know, this doesn't tell us a lot about the business really as a financial transaction, but it is interesting that for all of the supposed brilliance of Wall Street, Wall Street finds an inability to really look under the covers and see what's going on with these companies and see how sometimes a company might have disparate parts that uh, deserve disparate valuations. <laughs>
1: Corey, what's your next drill down? Do you remember Blackberry? Blackberry uh, I believe so. That's the one that you you could scroll with the little thing on your. Th- when's the last time you had a blackberry? uh I mean, it's been well over 10 years ago.
0: I think I had one probably about 2010, 2011, but that was about it.
1: Yeah, my last blackberry was a one that Bloomberg gave me for you know, but then they switched to iPhones.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess now that I think about it, at Bloomberg back around then, they w- you, they wouldn't let you use an iPhone
1: around the 2010 time. Yeah, is when I was at Bloomberg. In any case,
0: BlackBerry for those our listeners, Isaac and I once worked at Bloomberg. Um, yeah. and uh, BlackBerry, of course, is still around as a business, but it has really struggled, and uh, it continues to kind of shrink. The uh, you know uh, the business is, just isn't what it used to be
1: should i even say what the share price is yeah also bb bb it, blackberry trades under bb and shares have dropped 22 percent in a year but you may as we've been just talking be old, uh, talking about been old enough to realize to remember when bb shares traded for 131 dollars a share back in 2008 but now they've been chugging along at below uh, at or below 10 for years and they now trade around six
0: Yeah. And, and remember that this was one of those meme stocks when that phenomena first hit us, you know, a little over a year ago. Um, uh, And as you mentioned. There's nostalgia
1: that surrounds BlackBerry.
0: Well, there was this belief that they were going to sell their patents for billion dollars or so, and that their Mm -hmm. cybersecurity business was going to be fantastic. And which is the principal, you know, business that they're into selling software right now. And, and again, selling the licenses would help a lot with this company that's got a, $4 $4 billion market cap. Well, they didn't sell them for those, those patents for a billion dollars. They sold them for, which is what the analysts thought was going to happen. Uh, in fact, they sold them for about $600 million. When they reported revenue, when they, sorry, when they reported earnings, fourth quarter earnings uh, in the last week, revenues uh, were down uh, from $210 million a year ago to $185 million. Uh, Their annual revenues were about 20% lower, um, not least of which because um, uh, the patent uh, license revenues g- are going away. Um, And their cybersecurity revenue. They put in the headline of the press release, I had to check this a couple times, that both sequential and year over year billings growth for cybersecurity, but the revenues were actually down sequentially from 128 to 122 million. So, you know, one would think that any kind of product in cybersecurity would be having great success as we've got, you know, we've had, oh my God, we've had so many cybersecurity companies on our show uh, Mm -hmm. in the last few months. Uh, but in fact, not all of those solutions are the same. And you see this tepid growth, even shrinkage uh, from BlackBerry. Here's CEO John Chen sort of suggesting that the cybersecurity world will deliver success to BlackBerry, even though the numbers aren't quite there.
2: The cybersecurity world uh, is, um, you know, there are a lot of more threats and a, a attack, Um And we see demand growing raw demand growing uh, like everybody else in the market have seen the raw demand is really going very fast um, there are uh, uh, also a replacement market um, for the older generation signature based um, company uh, like McAfee and Symantec and Microsoft um, so, so you can see the second generation you know the ml based company like ourselves and some of the names and uh, key names in the industry, uh, um, you know, it, 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 we, we could do a lot of, you know, a, a, a good success rate in replacing legacies, um, in implementation.
0: So, yes, they could do a lot of good success rate in replacing legacy implementations, but they're not doing that at great growth numbers, as we see in so many other cybersecurity companies. All right, coming up next, we've got a really interesting uh, play in the um, the world of online um, shopping for in the third world, uh, where we've got uh, Dlocal. Dlocal's chief operating officer Sumita Pandit, uh, who is uh, was a hotly sought after uh, candidate in the world of fintech, she ends up at D-Local with a really interesting story and a really
1: interesting business. Uh, you'll hear all that when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more.
0: Welcome back to the Drill Down podcast. We are joined, as promised, by Sumita Pandit. She's the Chief Operating Officer a company called Dlocal. Samita, glad to have you. What does Dlocal do? What problem are you solving?
3: Thanks, Corey. it's great to join you today. Uh, so Delocal is a global cross-border payments infrastructure company, and we connect global merchants to emerging market consumers. Uh, Think of us as like a single platform, one API, one platform, one contract, where we're enabling global merchants to accept payments, send payouts, settle funds globally in 30 plus countries, issue white label prepaid uh, cards, also look at fraud management solutions. That's essentially what our platform does for global merchants today in more than 30 countries.
0: So not just about enabling transactions, but really covering all the aspects of a transaction as and, and after it happens.
3: That's right. And maybe a couple of use cases just to make uh, yeah. make that come to life. So let's Please. say you know there's a consumer in Chile trying to buy something on Amazon in the U.S. She's trying to use her domestic credit card and she wants to make her payments through installments. We facilitate that. Let's say there is a consumer in Nigeria trying to buy a Microsoft Office subscription in Naira. That's their local currency. We, w- we would go ahead and facilitate that. So those are some of the use cases that we enable for our merchants. And we do it very seamlessly. Um, the mer- Merchant doesn't have to pick and choose options in multiple countries. They could do that through a single platform. And that's the value add we provide to merchants today.
0: What what kind of margins are merchants paying under existing solutions before they go to DeLocal, And what does it look like for them afterwards? I think it's really hard for listeners in the U.S. And while we have listeners all over the world, um, most of our listeners are in the U.S. I think it's really hard to understand the problems of buying things, of, of moving money, of remittance fees, um, if you're in the first world, it's just impossible to understand why you have a better relationship with your money changer than with your barber.
3: Yeah, you know, that's, this is that's what
0: happens in the third world.
3: Yeah. And Corey, You're so right about it, because I think when for most people, you know, sitting in the U.S., you don't even know what it means when a transaction gets declined. Typically, when you use a credit card, it just seamlessly goes through. Right. So 97, 98 percent of the time when a consumer is swiping a credit card. Yeah. if If you have a card and if you have a good credit history, typically, you know, the transaction would just seamlessly go through. Um, You're also more likely to use what I would call non-cash payment methods for a lot of the online purchasing that you do today in in, in developed markets. The emerging markets are completely different. Um, A lot of consumers don't have access to typical sources of credit, so they may be using an alternative payment method. So think about PIX in Brazil or Boleto in Brazil, think about Fowry in Egypt, think about making a payment through UPI in India. That's how consumers live and breathe in these countries. And they want to be able to buy the same products and services that consumers in the U.S. have always had access to. And they don't. And so I think that is really where conversion ratio becomes really important. What I mean by that is how often does a transaction go through? So let's say in the US, if that happens 97, 98% of the time, in a lot of these emerging markets, it's as low as 40, 50% of the time. And that's the pain point that we are solving for, which is helping our merchants increase that conversion ratio.
0: How many of these merchants are online uh, with the majority of their business?
3: So we only work on online solutions. So we are only working for merchants that have an online product that they are selling, Uh, It could be across verticals. So it's not a single vertical exposure. It's not just e-commerce. It's not just gaming. There are a variety of verticals that we serve today. Um, But yes, we are focused on online. The reason we have chosen not to go offline is that the opportunity in online itself is so big. We think that that is the path that a lot of global merchants are going to take to essentially continue to grow. And we want to be able to facilitate it. One of the things, our thesis is speed. Um, It's taken us about six years to be in 33 countries. We've done that country by country, integrating infrastructure in each country. And uh, our view is that there is advantage in moving quickly and covering infrastructure across these emerging markets. That's the reason why we have chosen to remain focused on online solutions.
0: So what countries are you talking about in your uh, SEC filings? You talk about Brazil and India and Nigeria. What countries are most important to you, and how do you decide where to go? I'll also mention that in SEC filings, as recently as a year ago, you you know were in thirty countries or less. So, you know, adding ten percent to your country count has got to help a lot.
3: Yeah, and I would say right now we are in about thirty three countries. We started in Latin America, Corey, so that is still a very big part of our business. Um, in our filings, I think we mentioned that ninety percent of our business comes from LATAM, and ten percent comes from non-LATAM markets. Um, I would say there is no single country that's that's a big part of that overall volume. Um, a lot of people assume Brazil is our biggest market. It's not, um, but I would say it's the typical countries in LATAM. So Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Peru, Mexico. They're all um, countries that we serve. In Africa, we are uh, we are serving Nigeria, Egypt. Um, in Asia, we are in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. In Southeast Asia, we've opened up Vietnam, etc. So it's a very, very uh, broad footprint. And what's interesting is that uh, we are actually trying to remain local, meaning that we actually have people on the ground in Asia today. We have people on the ground in Africa today. And that's a big part of our overall strategy, which is to serve these markets locally.
0: You mentioned Brazil is not your largest country. What is?
3: We've not disclosed that, Corey, in our filings. Uh, well, you can
0: so, if you want. I'm not, I'm not holding you back.
3: <laughs> no, actually, I think we have to be pretty consistent. The lawyers tell us that we have to be super consistent about our disclosures. So we've not named a country. Brazil would be a top three market for sure, but it's not the biggest country.
0: And as and how do you decide what countries to go to? And I'm going to ask the same kind of question about merchants. I would, you know, how do you decide which countries to go after?
3: So one of the reasons why Delocal has been profitable is the way we have thought about our expansion strategy. We don't like to innovate in a vacuum. We don't like to open up a country uh, if we don't know that there is volume guaranteed. Uh, What we typically like to do is have a merchant in waiting. What I mean by that is, let's say there is a merchant we are working with in another country and they come to us and say, hey, we want you to open up this additional country for us. We do our research on, are there other merchants who are asking for that market? Is there a core minimum volume that we could get by opening up the market? And then we go ahead and get our expansion team to focus on adding uh, that country into our footprint. The advantage of doing it this way is we always have a merchant in waiting, so our ROI on that investment is extremely high. That's how we think about it. It really would not map with a typical top 50 emerging markets list. Like, for example, we've opened up small markets like Bangladesh, The reason we've done that is not necessarily uh, because it has the biggest standalone volumes, but because it is important for our markets. For a lot of our merchants who are serving South Asia and are already in India, they want to be in Bangladesh. They want to be in Pakistan. So a lot of our decisions is really driven by, you know, our merchants.
0: So it's follow the customer. So what kind of merchants, obviously, uh, a business like yours benefits from one sale to a big merchant instead of many sales to small merchants?
3: So, yes, we are a very enterprise focused platform, uh, which is another reason why I think, you know, it adds to our profitability metrics. Uh, our customer acquisition cost is is not the way you would think about a typical fintech. Most of the fintechs that have gone public last year are consumer facing fintechs that traditionally have a customer acquisition cost because they're acquiring end consumers. We are focused on uh, B2B enterprise uh, merchants. But you've got um, bodies
0: on the ground of people doing sales and and you know scuffing up shoe leather and 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 knocking on doors that's that's a different kind of expense for customer acquisition cost
3: yes but we are focused on acquiring merchants uh, so we are never focused on acquiring the consumers that the merchants are going after so it's the merchant that is acquiring the consumer we have bodies on the ground to essentially make sure we we are there to serve merchants who want to move out of their home countries uh, so there are lots of merchants in Asia who are looking to essentially sell their own products and services outside their home countries. That's the merchant we are going after. That's our customer.
0: So let me get back to the, the question I asked long ago. What does the margin profile look like for the cost of these services without d for a merchant? Once they switch to d what are their margins like?
3: So I, I actually, the reason I don't think there's a straight answer to that is it depends on the payment method, it depends on the country. So there's sure. a very big range there. Uh, and I don't think merchants shift to us because of cost. They shift to us because of conversion ratio. They shift to us because of the number of new consumers that can come to them if they were able to accept more payment methods. So let's take an example. Let's say if there was a merchant using you know a very large bank, a large international bank and is doing international acquiring. Um, they are essentially focused on consumers that can only pay using an international credit card in that market. It's a much smaller portion of the overall, I would say, uh, footprint in that country for that merchant. So the reason why merchants come to us is we are a revenue enabler rather than a cost um, efficiency play. Um, and that's why in all our conversations, when we are selling to a merchant, the analysis we are doing is never, oh, this is how much you are spending today versus how much you will spend with us now the typical analysis we do is what's the revenue you're making from this market today because of the number of consumers you're reaching and how much can you make if you were to actually accept payments with us because you're adding these, these number of payment methods. And on that incremental number, they look at, you know, what is the cost that they are paying to us?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 the reason I asked the question is I was kind of blown away. I worked for a a fintech company for a while called ripple. That was a different solution, but was, was concerned with the cost of, of moving money or trying to help uh, uh, all sorts of players, companies, individuals, banks, whatever, move money across borders at a cheaper, faster rate. And I was blown away that, you know, on Western union, for example, if you want to send Turkish lira to the net to euros in the Netherlands, by right, two EU countries, uh, you want to send 200 bucks a hundred dollars, it costs a uh, hundred lira. It costs 30 lira to do it. 30% fees. As high as thirty percent, sometimes yeah. to move money within a within a, the European Union. Uh, forget moving money from you know if you're in Nigeria and you want to buy something from Taiwan. I mean, it's the, these these costs are just uh, extraordinary uh, to the, the first world uh, uh, ears, the first world math, and I think it's such a massive hindrance to global economic expansion. Just moving money from one place to the next.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, let's take some examples. So let's say if you are in a developed market and let's look at what disclosures out there. So like a company like Arden discloses that their take rate, which is what I call fees, you know, which is the dollars paid per uh, transaction volume. Um, it's about, uh, I think last when I checked, it's about 19 to 20 basis points. Now they are dominant. They are an amazing company and they are dominant in, in the U.S. and Western Europe. So developed markets primarily and that's how much they make if you look at our take rates which is you know how much how many dollars do we make per dollar of volume that we process uh, we are somewhere in between 3 and 5 percentage points so much higher than Adyen but again much lower than the 30% that you are mentioning you know is sometimes prevalent for um remittances that that companies charge now keep in mind ours is not a consumer to consumer remittance I of think course. some of the some of the names that you mentioned the reason why it is Western so high yeah, yeah, yeah it's unbanked right It's essentially going after unbanked consumers who don't have any other option which
0: uh, is 70% of most of these countries or about big countries like Nigeria and uh, uh, Peru and, and, and Chile and so on
3: yeah, and I think we've heard you know there's a very big range. It again depends on the payment method. Uh, you know, cards would have a different uh, cost structure versus, let's say, you know, a wallet or or some other cash to digital payment method. But we've heard numbers anywhere from like seven to thirty percent as being the cost of moving money. And uh, obviously, that's like, you know, a very broad range because it captures a lot of countries and a lot of different payment methods. And we are somewhere in between three and five percent on an overall uh, business basis today.
0: Let me ask you, uh, since we're talking numbers, why doesn't uh, so you guys report total payment volume um, in the last quarter, I think it was one point eight billion dollars, growing at a fantastic rate, 217 percent. Your revenue only grows only 123% year over year. But why doesn't uh, uh, total payment volume at least match revenue growth, if not have revenue growth even bigger than total payment volume?
3: It's because if you just think about the history of payments, stake rates only come down. And that's actually not a bad thing. I know investors don't like to necessarily hear that, but it should be music to consumers' ears. It should be music to merchants' ears, which is, as you have more payment methods and you have um, providers that mature, such as us, we are essentially making sure that there is more fairness and and democratization that's happening in that payment method, meaning costs are coming down. So if you just think about every incremental dollar that we add, uh, typically we are able to negotiate better cost structures over, over the long run and we expect take rates to keep coming down. Like There is no reason why take rates have to be as high as it is today in emerging markets Our business is not a business of essentially making sure take rates remain where they are. Our business is to actually increase volume, add more payment methods, add merchants, but we expect our take rate to come down because that's, that even happens in developed markets today, right? You take, you look at Ardian, I always go back to Ardian as an example because we admire the company and I think that, you know, they have done what no one expected them to do, which is why it is such a valuable company today. Even when they went public, their take rates were about 25, 26 basis points. That was in the developed markets. Today, it's 18, 19. So it is coming down, but their business is as strong as ever. And that is really how we think about our business, which is take rates will come down, but we are focused on gross profit dollars and we are focused on how we make more money on a dollar basis from those merchants.
0: It's a a fascinating business uh, and your growth rates are are astounding. So is the evaluation of the stock but we don't care about stocks here we care about how the business works and and sumi panda uh thank you so much for helping us understand a little bit more about delocal
3: thank you cory for having me join you today
0: all right when the drill down continues we will have one number that means a whole lot the drill down bite about Local helping shed some light on this fast growing business when the drill down continues
1: the drill down is brought to you by ERA. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings, calls, and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, AIERA.com. And we hope you catch every show. If you're on
0: iTunes, it's easy. Just
1: hit that little plus
0: icon, top of your screen when you listen to this podcast, um, or on your desktop if you happen to do it that way. Whatever. It's a way to catch every show and be alerted to the
1: very latest drill down. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with a drill
0: down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Uh, Isaac, I hope that interview helped uh, shed some light on just how complicated payments are internationally. It's, it's hard for Americans to get that, uh, but, you know, because few Americans have run businesses in other countries. But the average number of payment methods per merchant okay. for DLocal has gone way up. Um, so that the average, so the average, if you look at their merchants, mm-hmm. the average number of ways that they accept payments, you want to guess? Average ways? Yeah. How many, uh, how many methods of payment does an individual merchant have online internationally? Five. For a D-Local customer. You are wrong. Okay. It's 62. Oh my God.
1: I was so, going to guess 10, and then I said, no, I'm going to pair it back. What if it is 10? I don't want Corey to get pissed. No, uh,
0: Corey can get pissed anyway. Uh, the average number of 62. payment methods per merchant, uh, that's up from 53 a year uh, in the first quarter. It's 62 wow. per merchant average. Wow. Average. That's crazy. Yeah, it's so complicated. And yeah. again, so expensive. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And I don't want to go spend too much time here. But, you know, if you think that merchants tend to have a... I don't know. 5-10% profit margin mm-hmm. on the products they sell. If they're having to spend 20%, that just gets to process payments. Right. Right. Your profit margin's gone or you got to charge a lot more for your products. Right. It is a massive hindrance to global economic growth. It's a match of massive hindrance to the happiness of people. It's a Byzantine all over the world.
1: bureaucracy. Yeah. Aren't all bureaucracies Byzantine? Maybe. Is that redundant? I don't know good question if someone's out there that knows the answer to that question please email us entomologists get to work (laughs) you've been listening
0: to the drill down where we are word and number challenged uh, (laughs) but we are overwhelmed with our uncountable gratitude for your time i'm Corey johnson isaac webster is our executive producer ben wilson is our editor extraordinaire the drill down is a production of the business podcast network